0: I've been to the town called Thessalonica. It's actually, I believe, called Thessaloniki right now. It's in Greece, on the Aegean Sea. In fact, about two weeks ago, it caught my attention because there was a demonstration happening in that city in Greece. But years back, almost 2,000 years back, when Paul was traveling to the city of Thessalonica, He was on his second missionary journey. Uh, Paul took about three massive journeys across the known world to make disciples of Jesus Christ. He reached modern-day Thessalonica in the first century in about the middle of his second journey. It was an amazing story how he got to this town. When you join the adventure of God, it's always an amazing story how you arrive at the place that you arrive, right? I mean, some of you are here today and you say, hey, four years ago, no way. It's an amazing story how you're sitting in the house of God with a Bible in your hand, loving God, loving Jesus, wanting to follow him. How many of you say it's amazing that I'm even here? How many of you say that? How many of you say, it's even more amazing that my neighbor is here? <laughs> Pastor, you should have seen this guy I never thought. I run into people once in a while, they come and visit this church, and they, they walk out amazed at some of the people they see in this church. And they say, I grew up with, I've seen some people I grew up with I never thought I would see in church. So let me tell you, people are amazed that you're here in the house of God, following God. So the story of how Paul ends up in, in Macedonia, which was the greater province area, and specifically in Thessalonica, is pretty amazing how Paul ended up there. He didn't plan to go there in the beginning. He had other plans, but he received what is called a Macedonian call. He had a dream. And in his dream, he was forbidden to go to where he wanted to go, and he was called to go to Macedonia ended up in Philippi do you remember what happened in Philippi he was preaching the gospel boldly they put him in jail God miraculously delivered him he ended up baptizing the jailer and the jailer said what must I do to be saved and that night I love this that night The jailer got saved and his entire family got baptized and saved with him. Man, that call a work of God. That's the way it works. So so Paul is on this move. I mean, he's he's full of the gospel of Jesus Christ, ready to tell people about Jesus. He gets from the jail, uh, Philippi, and he travels southward to the town of Thessalonica. When he gets there... It's very peaceful. People aren't aware that he is carrying with him something very dangerous because I want to tell you something. The gospel of Jesus Christ is dangerous. The gospel of Jesus Christ will turn your world upside down. Oh, you know, it's not just this. Small little message sprinkled on your life, the gospel of Jesus, if it gets a hold of you, it will radically turn you around. It will turn your world upside down. It will change the way you talk and the way you think and the way you walk and who you marry and how you raise your kids and how you go to your job. The gospel of Jesus Christ is revolutionary. People that are grabbed a hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ and filled with the Spirit, they are never to be the same. So when Paul gets there, people are okay with Paul preaching his message because they think, oh, he's just another teacher. But as he begins to teach and preach the gospel, suddenly people become alarmed, scared. In fact, it tells us that they say of them, so when Paul was accused, he was accused of, these are part of those who turned the world upside down because they proclaim another king and his name is Jesus. Now, when's the last time someone's accused you of being someone that turns the world upside down? When's the last time people have looked at the church and said it's dangerous in a good way? Oh, I pray that God would make us a dangerous church in a good way I pray that God will make it a a place where the message is so powerful so compelling that we need to put a sign on the front of the door that says danger you walk in this place you may be changed Uh, people come just to get a little religious service and walk out of this place their whole world turned upside down that's what I pray and I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is that way And he caused such a revolt, such a stirring, that they're accused of being those that turned the world upside down. And that's why we've called this series Defiance, turning the world, turn your world upside down. Let me tell you why the message was so, so revolutionary and radical to people. I believe it was revolutionary and radical because all of us have kings that we serve. Most of us serve King self Uh, we're on the throne of our life we dictate what we want where we live who we marry and how we do life when Jesus moves in he beckons you he calls you he challenges you if you are going to follow him that he be king of your life you see the gospel says the gospel you cannot be a Christian without embracing the kingship of Jesus Christ Part of receiving the gospel and being a Christian is that you change leaders in your life. Most of us lead our own life or have other people that lead our life or materialism leads your life or selfishness leads your life or pleasure leads your life. And when you come to Jesus, then suddenly those no longer are kings. You have to establish a new king, King Jesus. And King Jesus begins to bring in his kingdom culture into your life. And everything about your life now follows the leadership of King Jesus. It tells us in this passage that that as Paul began to preach, you see these people... You see, Thessalonica had been established by... Oh, you'll remember the name, a fellow by the name of Alexander the Great... He had come through this place and established it as a city that had a lot of influence and power. Some people called it the Second Rome. Now, if you know anything about the Roman Empire, when they conquered a city, they would put up a leader, establish a military garrison there, and they would uh, would levy taxes against that city. But there were few exceptions to what they did. If a city was very loyal to Rome, and if they felt like they were a friend of Rome, then they would be called a free city. In this city, they would not put a military presence, nor would they extract taxes from that city. Thessalonica prided itself in being a free city. They were loyal to Rome, and if you were loyal to Rome, you were loyal to the emperor of Rome. In the middle of the city of Thessalonica was a statue of Augustus. Archaeologists have found the statue almost intact, and it's dated back to this era. Augustus was the emperor that reigned at that time. People that lived in Thessalonica, they they pledged their allegiance to the emperor. They viewed him as a god. Uh, He was a deity to them. So when Paul came in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, he proclaimed that you may have other kings in your life, but the greatest of all these kings is King Jesus. And when King Jesus comes, everybody is submitted to King Jesus. Suddenly, it created fear in the people in Thessalonia that he was preaching another ruler, another king, someone else, and they were afraid of their relationship with Rome. And so it stirred up such a controversy that they literally chased the apostle Paul and Timothy and, and, and Silvanus. They chased him out of Thess- uh, Thessalonica. And I want, you to realize, I want you to see with me the first few verses of Thessalonians. Because I believe what happens when King Jesus comes in and you accept the gospel of King Jesus, that he introduces you to a different culture. Now some of you come from, originally from another country, and so you, when you came to America, I was raised in another country, although I'm American by birth, I was raised in the country of Spain, and I never really lived in America for any long period of time until I was 17 and came here to go to college, so although my parents were American and I was born here and I speak English and visited, I was raised in a different culture. So when I first came to this culture, a lot of things were different to me. I wasn't used to the food because I ate different kind of food. People would talk about television programs. I had never watched them. People listened to music that I had never heard before. Uh, it was a different culture. I, my, my English class in college was atrocious. Because I had studied in a Spanish school system, and my spelling in Spanish was pretty good, but my English spelling was really, really bad. A lot of bloopers. I didn't have a computer with spell check at the time. Man, I could have used one in those days. But when I came to Chicago, a big city from a small town in this country, I experienced what people call culture shock. There was a lot of things that were different to me, a lot of of cultural things. Why? Because I was coming from a different culture and I was being inducted into a new culture. Uh, Some of you have experienced that. We live in a dominant culture. There are certain things if you live in Chicago and, and you're an American that are part of our culture that we all accept, that we all understand it's called the dominant culture. It's what David Gibbons calls the first culture. Then, within that dominant, homogeneous culture, there are subcultures. They're called the second culture. Uh, if, you go down to, uh, if you go down to 26th Street in Little Village and you walk down Little Village, it's almost like this is a subculture of Chicago, right? I mean, you do better speaking Spanish there than English. All the signs are in Spanish. The taquerias are there. And it's like, it's like a piece of Mexico has been translated over here. You go to Humble Park and there's neighborhoods where it's like Puerto Ricanville, right? It, it, it's like the culture of Puerto Rico is there. You go to Chinatown and the language of China, uh, uh, the Cantonese and Mandarin are spoken there. The food of, uh, of China is there because there's subcultures within a big culture. So that's called the second culture. I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ introduces a third culture It's not the dominant culture It's not an ethnic culture. It's a third culture It's a culture that has its own language a culture that has its own values a culture. Listen to me that has its own king And when you embrace this culture You will clash with the dominant culture of our society because the values that you hold will be radically different than the values of most of your neighbors and most of your associates and relatives and co-workers and co-students because it's the value system and the culture of the kingdom of God. It's a defiant, radically different culture. So Paul begins to speak to the Thessalonians. They have been already accused of being those that turned the world upside down. Paul has to leave Thessalonica, running for his life. He sends his young companion Timothy back to check on the Thessalonians. And he receives news that they're doing well. And so he writes the first letter that Paul wrote, which is 1 Thessalonians. He's straightening straightening some issues out for them but he's reminding them of the call of who they are or they are part of those that turn the world upside down. And I want you to see what he says. Verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians, he says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. That's a common Pauline greeting. I love that, grace and peace. Grace means the unmerited favor of God Peace means that contentment that passes understanding, And If you have grace and peace, you're going to go a long way. I want all the grace and all the peace I can get. That's why I try to pray grace and peace over you every Sunday. Have you noticed that? At the end of the service, I want to bless you and pray grace and peace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Peace is the internal contentment regardless of whatever situation you're facing. So I pray grace and peace almost every Sunday over this congregation. He says, grace and peace. And then verse 2, it says, we always thank God for you, mentioning you in our prayers. I love the heart of Paul. He had only been in Thessalonica probably three weeks. He preached three Saturdays in the synagogue, and then he was chased out. But how many of you know when... When someone comes to Christ and you share spiritual things, you can get really close really fast because you share your heart and your spirit and the same king. Has that happened to you? Have you ever been to like like an encounter retreat or a Bible study group and maybe someone that you haven't known before ever in your life but you're in a Bible study for two hours and you share your heart and you share Jesus and you open up and you pray for each other and you walk away feeling like, I just have a new family. I feel like I've known them forever. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Because there's something that happens when you share your heart and you share your spirit with someone else. It draws you close together. Paul had only been there about three weeks. But he says to them, man, I remember you every single day in prayer. And I thank God for you. Thank God for you. I want you to know, by the way, as your pastor, that I pray for you practically every single day. And thank God I don't say, oh, Lord, why'd you stick me with new life? Jesus. Oh, Lord, these people, I have to be honest with you, the great majority of the days I'm saying thank you, Lord, for this congregation. I am so grateful to be a part of a congregation like this and people like this and this kind of community. I'm serious about that. I'm serious about that. Now, there are days, you know, there's days like every day, but, but most of the time, 95% of the time, I'm really, really thankful and grateful. And so Paul begins to thank he he tells him he thanks God for them continually in his prayers. And then in verse three he says, We remember, we remember before our God and Father three things. These three things are characteristics of the third culture of a kingdom culture listen if you're gonna be a follower of Jesus Christ you will have these three things in your life if you do not have these three things in your life then you're probably not a follower of Jesus Christ because these are implicit in the kingdom culture you're gonna breathe these things you're gonna live these things if Jesus is King these values will be your values number one he says We thank God, we thank God continually for your work produced by faith. The three three things that he mentions are these three things. You've heard them before. Faith, hope, and love. Have you heard of that trio? Faith, hope, and love? This is the first time that the Apostle Paul mentions it in the entire New Testament. Faith, hope, and love. Be, he will mention these three trios later on these three things faith hope and love are part of the dominant cultural values of those people that follow Jesus Christ. These are characteristics of everybody who's a follower of Jesus Christ. If you embrace the kingdom of God then you will embrace the culture of the kingdom and if you embrace the culture of the kingdom then these values will be part of the values that you embrace. So I want to talk to you about them. First of all, he says, faith that produces, he says, your "Your work produced by faith. The first value is faith that produces action. Let me tell you what, what true faith is. True faith is not just believing a set of doctrines. True faith, you believe enough that it causes you to change. If your faith does not cause you to change and your faith does not lead you to action, then your faith is not enough. There's a lot of people that say they believe in God. A lot of people, if they were to mark on their Facebook status what they are, they would say Christian. There's a lot of people when they sign into a hospital and have to check what they are, what religion, they will say Christian. But let me tell you, there's a difference between people that consider themselves religiously Christian and people who have real faith. Because people who have real faith will have real change and real action. You cannot have... True faith without having true change. Look at what James says. In James chapter 2 verse 18 and 19 he says, But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God good, even the demons believe that and shudder. Some people say, well, I believe in God. You know what James is saying? The demons believe in God too. So you and the demons, same place. It says the demons believe so much in God that they shudder. So just because you believe in God, just because you believe that there is a supreme being, just because you believe that there is someone that is sovereign over the universe oh that's a start but listen that doesn't make you a Christian believing in God does not make you a Christian can I say that again 98% of the world believes in God in a God in a deity the great majority of the people in America a good probably 90% believe in God the God of the Bible But just because you believe in God, Jehovah God, the God that's labeled in the Bible as Christian, just because you believe he exists, just because you believe he is sovereign, just because you believe that 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 he is up there somewhere dictating and moving the affairs of the universe. That does not in and of itself make you a Christian. True faith. Means that we believe enough, that our faith is enough, that we believe what God says. And God says that there is no way to be right with him except through the mediator, Jesus Christ. And if we're going to be right with him through Jesus Christ, then we must repent of our sins and in faith accept him as Lord and Savior of our life. Which means that he now becomes King Jesus to us. If you have never crossed that line, you say, well, pastor, I believe in God. Great. The demons believe too. If I go to right now to 26 in Cal and interview the majority of the inmates that are in 26 in California, I can guarantee you that 95% of them believe in God. Does that mean that most of them are Christians? I would beg to differ. Seriously. Believing in God doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is when you transfer the lordship and leadership of your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ and where you are not king anymore, materialism is not king, your boyfriend's not king, your husband's not king, your job is not king, pleasure is not king, drugs are not king, your kids are not king, who becomes the king of your life is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ can have no competition when he is king and you have translated your life to the lordship of Jesus and allowed him to be the dominant force in your life and accepted his message of cleansing and salvation. Then you are transferred to the kingdom of light. The Holy Spirit starts dwelling inside of you and the Bible says you've moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Anybody with me this morning? Because this is huge. Faith that produces works. You say, well, pastor, you know, I I accept the Lord when I was six years old and in Sunday school. and You know, so I, I prayed a prayer. I raised my hand. I walked an aisle. I prayed with the Sunday school teacher. But you know what? That was 25 years ago. I've never really lived for God. Let me tell you something. You weren't saved. You prayed a Sunday school prayer. You cannot truly have Jesus Christ as king of your life and live for the last 25 years without having him be king of your life. Jesus requires lordship, change. True faith will lead to true action. True faith will change you. It will make you different. There will be evidence of that transformation in your life. So part of the kingdom culture is faith that leads to action. Not just faith that leads you to church, but faith that leads you to change Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday as well. It's a faith that makes you live different, act different, speak different, behave different. Why? Because you have a new king in your life that's part of the culture of the kingdom of God. The second culture of the kingdom is love. Notice what he says. Your labor prompted by love. Now, a lot of times when we talk about love, people think that people think that love is not a choice. I talk to a couple that's getting married, and I say, so why are you getting married? Love. <laughs> well, so what happened? We just fell in love. We just can't help it. We just fell in love. Here's what I know, though. That's a bit of a Hollywood definition of love because if you fall in love, you can also fall out of love. Love is not an emotion. Love is an attitude that you choose to embrace. From a biblical definition, listen, he says, he, he says this. Your, he says, not only your work produced by faith but your labor prompted by love. Have you ever seen labor and love in the two, uh, th- those two words combined together? Labor and love? There's two words that are used in the New Testament to describe hard work. One of the words is ergon. Ergon. And aragon sometimes can mean it may be pleasant and stimulating. In other words, something that you're doing that you enjoy doing. The other word is kopos. Kopos implies toil that is strenuous and sweat-producing. Your strenuous, sweat-producing work prompted by love. Well, that doesn't sound very emotional. You know what he's saying? We are a people that are called, our culture, our DNA, if Jesus is king, is that we're going to be a people that loves, even when it's hard to love. Oh, I got to say that again. Hey, the world around us, people love people that love them. People like to hang around with people that like them. You say, oh, I love Giordano's Pizza. Oh, I love that friend of mine. They're so nice to me, and I love them bad. He's not talking about that. He's talking about if Jesus, King Jesus, is king of our lives, it means that we are going to strenuously work and sweat hard at loving people that are unlovable because when Jesus hung on the cross of Calvary and the Roman soldiers we're, they, were, they were bargaining. They were, they were throwing dice to see who would take his, his, his clothing. He said, forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. Let me tell you, God is calling us as a people to love people that are hard to love. Dysfunctional, broken people that others will not love. But we are called to be a community that loves even the hardest to love. And we all have in our life. How about it? Some of you go to work and you say, oh, Jesus, fill me with love because that person. Oh. Some of you have it at home. Oh, Lord, Jesus, help me love my husband because that person. Oh. Listen, we are a community that's characterized by love. It doesn't mean that everybody that walks through the door, you get these, these little goosebump emotions and say, see that? person there. I just love them. So I've never met them, but I just love them. So no, 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 it's not about that. That's creepy actually. (laughs) This means that we choose an attitude of love so that this community of faith, listen, I've told you this before and I'll tell you it again. You're not, you probably not connected or integrated in this church. Unless someone has offended you already. You're you're probably not connected here unless someone has rubbed you wrong, offended you, uh, unless you've had to go and get things right with people. Because let me tell you something. This church, like all churches, is full of imperfect people. We all have issues that God is working on But when we choose to love, we say, I'm going to love people with issues, in issues, with dysfunction or not dysfunction, because I'm called to be like Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is king. That means that we love one another and work through those issues, but it also means that we love the world that is outside, the broken world. It means that when people walk in here and they don't have their act together, we love them in Jesus' name, not because they're lovable, but because God loves them and we are a people that has a culture of love. No matter who walks through these doors, no matter how far gone they are, we sweat and toil to love them in a way that can change their lives and transform them because that's part of our culture. That's our DNA. In fact, you know what it tells us in John chapter 13, verse 35? By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. By the big King James Bible you have under your arm. No. By how many verses you memorize. No. By how long your church services are. No. By this will all men know that you are my disciples. If you love... One another. what does that mean? Listen, I'm calling this church and our community of faith to radically love people that are hard to love. We love people in their dysfunction, whoever walks through these doors, whoever we interact with, part of the accusation of Jesus was Jesus hung out around with sinners? He hung out with sinners and people that were broken, but Jesus was in the world but not of the world, and he loved them. listen. Through these doors, most people that come to church don't come looking for God these days. Most people that come through these doors come looking for relief from their problems and pain. And God is the last place because they figure, i got so many issues and problems. I've tried solving them on my own. Maybe the church has some answers. So I'll show up in the church saying, oh God, if you're there, please help me. And here we are, the community of faith. And that's the place where we love people through their problems and through their marriage difficulties and through their addictions and through the depression and through the junk and the garbage and the bitterness and the brokenness. That's where we're at. We're the people of God. Our culture is the culture of of love. Amen? Amen? Faith, love, and lastly, I close with this. Faith, love, and hope. Listen to what he says. He says, not only your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Hope is the expectation of a better future based on the promises of God. Here's what he says. We are a people of hope. Our hope drives us to endure hardship. Listen, if someone ever told you that following Jesus Christ was easy, they lied to you. If someone said, come to God, you have all these problems and all your problems will disappear when you come to God, they lied to you. If someone said, hey, your life is a mess right now. Hey, your life is very difficult. You're having a lot of trouble trouble. Come to God and life will be so much easier and most of your problems will disappear. That was a lie. In fact, you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, following me will create probably more problems in your life. Following me, you want an easy road? Then go on the wide road. Jesus said there's two roads. One is wide and there's a lot of people on it. It's an easy road and it leads to destruction.'" the way of God is a narrow way. Few people find it. It's a tougher road. It's a more difficult road, but it's the way that ultimately leads to life. Listen, I can guarantee you. Yeah. If you're here and you say, I'm not a Christian pastor convince me to become a Christian. Hey, you're not a Christian right now. Your Christianity may mean that you have to get rid of your girlfriend. Yeah, if she doesn't want to follow Jesus Christ and Jesus is king in your life, you're going to want a girlfriend that who's who also Jesus is king of her life. Hey, you may have to give up your girlfriend. Guess what? If you choose to follow Jesus Christ, some of your friends may push you out of the inner circle and start having parties without you because now you're different. You follow another king. Hey, Listen. Following Jesus Christ may have you radically change the way you do your weekends. Radically. Following Jesus Christ may bring problems to your life that you never even knew you had. In fact, it may bring persecution to your life. Following Jesus Christ. You still want to follow him? Seriously, you still want to follow him? You say, well, pastor, then why should I follow oh, Let me tell you why. It's the only way to life and life eternal. Jesus one day looked at Peter. The disciples had... A whole bunch of disciples had walked away from him because his teaching was too hard. And Jesus looked at Peter and and, and his, his core of disciples and he says, do you want to leave too? And Peter said, if we leave you, where will we go? Only you have words of life. Here's what I want you to know. You come to follow Jesus. He gives you life. Forgiveness. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That can be found nowhere else. There, there is no other way to God except through Jesus Christ, who's the mediator. There's one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. But listen, if you're going to follow Jesus, then you embrace His kingdom culture, which is full of a faith that causes us to move to action That's why we as a community of faith feel compelled to try to work in our neighborhood and turn it around. Why? Because our faith leads us to action. That's why we in our lives have to change. Why? Because our faith leads us to action. If you follow King Jesus, it's going to drive you to a love that sweats at loving other people, hard people to love, but you choose the attitude of love. You say, I will love people because, first of all, Jesus loved me. And if Jesus could love someone like me, how can I not try to love with all my heart other people that are around me that are hard to love? And thirdly, hope. We are the people of hope, and we endure through hardship. It presses us to endure. Listen to me. I close with this. The Bible says that those that endure to the end will be saved. I believe that when you truly have hope in you and the Holy Spirit, it will cause you to endure to the end. There will be some that will fall away and won't endure. John tells us that that's a sign that they were never of us to begin with. They'll fall away. They'll leave God the things of God, the people of God, and some will leave and never come back, never. John says it's a sign that they were never truly a part of the people of God. Those that endure to the end through hope, they may struggle, but they'll always come back. They may, they, they may wrestle, but hope will drive them to come back to the people of God and the things of God. And they will endure to the end because it's a sign that they truly have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of them. Faith, hope, and love.